Welcome to my series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and a specialist in the history of the Tudors. In this podcast I'll be looking at the life of Margaret Tudor who became Queen of Scotland and I'll include some short excerpts of where she appears in my books. I first began exploring the story of Margaret Tudor when I was researching for my book about her father, King Henry VII. Now, Margaret was the eldest daughter of Henry and Elizabeth of York, and she was born on the 28th of November 1489 at the Palace of Westminster about a year and a half before her famous brother, who became Henry VIII. Now, Henry wanted to use his daughter's marriage to James IV of Scotland to end the wars that had been going on for centuries and stop him supporting this chap Perkin Warbeck who was the pretender to the English throne. But most importantly what he wanted was a lasting alliance with Scotland because um, the alternative was that Scotland would form an alliance with France which would combine they could be a dangerous enemy. And it was particularly important because Catherine of Aragon's father, King Ferdinand, had made it quite clear to Henry that Catherine uh, wasn't coming to England until Henry had dealt with these pretenders to the throne. So Henry Tudor started the discussions about his daughter Margaret's marriage when she was only six years old. Now this sounds a bit early, but wasn't, of course, at all unusual in Tudor times. Uh, The other thing was her grandmother, who was also her godmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, who she was actually named after, had concerns of her own. She was married to Henry's father, um, Edmund Tudor, and gave birth to Henry when she was only 13 years old. Now, the thing was she was far too young and really quite small and the experience nearly killed her. In fact uh, she wasn't ever able to have any more children which meant uh, that she was really conscious of the risks for her goddaughter. Um, From the records of the time a picture of Margaret Tudor emerges as someone who really quite enjoyed being a princess. She loved dancing and music as well as archery. We don't think of Tudor women um, doing archery, but they did. And playing cards, which was a favourite pastime of her parents. There are plenty of records showing poor old Henry Tudor losing money to his wife at a game of cards, and uh, their daughter was no stranger to it. Interestingly, although she had access to her brother's tutors, who were uh, the best that money could buy, um, chroniclers describe her as neither a learned or educated princess. And also, she seems to have shared some Tudor qualities with her brother Henry, as she was said to be very stubborn and impatient and could be quite disappointed when things don't go her way as a girl. And from her portraits um, when she was young, I feel you can see something of her maternal grandfather, Edward IV. 
so she perhaps she had a, a little of his character as well. It's sometimes said that Henry Tudor cared little for his daughters and sent poor Margaret off to Scotland without much of a dowry. So I'd like to read a short excerpt from Sarah Beth Watkins' excellent book, uh, Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots. To set the scene, Henry has lost his son and heir. He's lost his wife, Elizabeth of York, who died sadly on her birthday after complications with their last child. And now he has to surrender his daughter. This is from Sarah Beth Watkins' book. In May, the king was roused from his grief to send commissioners to Scotland to arrange the handover of Margaret's dowerlands, including the forest of Ettrick, the whole county of Mar, the domains of Dunbar and Colbranspath, excepting Dunbar Castle, the palace and domain of Linlithgow, the castle and domain of Stirling, and the castle and domain of Methven, the castle and domain of Down in Perthshire, and the earldom of Montreath. With the legalities being confirmed, Lady Margaret Beaufort took charge of her granddaughter's departure for Scotland. The princess's trousseau needed completing. There were gowns to be made and cloths to be embroidered. The needlewomen were made busy by the making of regal purple and cloth of gold gowns, amongst others, and kirtles, smocks, petticoats and hose. There were shoes to be made to match each gown, and livery was needed in green and black for her litter bearers and green cloth of gold and white for her footmen. Her litter itself was to be covered with cloth of gold and embroidered with the royal coat of arms. The Tudor arms was painted on her coach too, and if she wished to ride, she had a saddle embroidered with tiny red roses to sit upon her palfrey. Henry VII, notorious for being mean, spent a fortune in making sure that Margaret had everything to start her new life and show off the wealth of the Tudors to the poorer Scots. On the 27th of June, Henry escorted Margaret as far as her grandmother's home at Collie Weston, which had been prepared in advance to cater for the huge entourage that would accompany her on her journey north. Lady Beaufort had changed the once simple manor house in Northamptonshire into a palace fit for a queen, with a chapel, library, counting house, a great parlour, queen's chamber, guest chambers, a jewel house, vestry, wardrobe of beds and robes, spicery, brewery, kitchen and square, and many other rooms beside a clock house in the great tower. A new guest house had also been built for the occasion, the gardens and ponds tidied and a summer house installed for their pleasure. Margaret spent her last idyllic days there with her family, conscious that she may never see them again. Once she was in Scotland, there'd be no reason to travel back to her father's court. And like many a princess who married into another country, she was excited, scared and anxious in all equal measure. She had lost so much lately with her brother's and mother's death that it was heart-wrenching to say goodbye to her grandmother, her siblings and her father. Henry VII must have felt it too. She was his favourite daughter 
and at their final parting, he gave her his blessing and a beautifully illuminated book of hours. Inside he had written, Remember your kind and loving father in your good prayers. And then further in the book, on a blank page opposite the prayers for December, he wrote, Pray for your loving father that gave you this book. I gave you at all times God's blessing and mine, Henry. Henry's mother did her best to delay the marriage and Margaret had to wait 18 months before going to Scotland but eventually Margaret and James of Scotland were married in Edinburgh on the 8th of August 1503 just before Margaret's 14th birthday so she was still uh, 13 the same as her grandmother but thanks to her grandmother it was agreed the marriage wouldn't be consummated until Margaret reached the age of 18 and although they agreed a treaty of perpetual peace james who was 16 years older than margaret seems to have taken this as an excuse to continue his uh, string of mistresses by the time of his betrothal to margaret he already had five illegitimate children which gives you some idea of the the scale of his ambition in my book Henry book three of the Tudor trilogy uh, read by James Young I have a scene where Henry visits his mother and sits with her for a meal his mother studied him with a look of concern he was used to it now and knew he looked thin his face pale with grey stubble and forever lined with the burden of his grief she sat with the sun behind her casting her face into shadow and reflecting from her white cowl in a halo of light. Henry washed his hands in the silver bowl of rose water, trying not to spill any on his mother's polished table. A young serving girl avoided his eyes as she stepped forward and dried them on a white linen towel. A simple ritual, yet he'd never become used to the intimate touch of servants. After she finished, he looked across the table at his mother. I had a letter from my daughter Margaret in Scotland. How is she? In truth, her letter reveals little. She wishes she was back here with us. I must show it to you, as I'm concerned for her. You know my view on the marriage. Your daughter is too young. There was an edge of disapproval in her voice. He remembered the last time he'd seen his daughter was the day she left for Scotland. Small for her thirteen years. She'd worn a heavy brocade gown that hid her girlish curves. Around her neck glittered a ruby pendant on a gold chain, a farewell present he'd given her. He also recognised Elizabeth's diamond ring on Margaret's finger. He pushed away the memory of his dead wife's cold hand in his. His mother had been forceful in her concern that Margaret was too young. He knew she was mindful of her own brush with death as she'd been only a year older than Margaret when he'd been born. He agreed a compromise, and delayed his daughter's departure by eighteen months, but the time soon passed. He escorted Margaret on her way to Scotland, as far as his mother's mansion at Collie Weston in the north. Henry was unsurprised when she made one last attempt to persuade him to wait until Margaret was sixteen, but by then it was too late. Even though he understood her concern, he had to let Margaret go. 
Now his daughter was married to King James, a man more than twice her age, with a reputation for taking mistresses. Margaret accepted her destiny in good faith and understood her duty. Their union had put the seal on a truce with Scotland, uniting their nations in blood. As her carriage disappeared into the distance, he'd worried he might never see her again. Henry tasted his Rhinish wine and found it a little sharp, although he would not say so to his mother. His remaining teeth ached, and his throat still felt painful after the quinsy. His physician cautioned him the damage might be permanent, and suggested he should thank the Lord to have recovered at all. Another of his mother's servants, a middle-aged woman dressed in her Beaufort livery, brought a pie decorated with pastry, stag, antlers. Henry still found he had little appetite. He left the thick crust to the side of his plate, but tasted the meat. The fine venison was cooked in herbs and lightly spiced with cloves. You know, this is one of my favourite dishes, she nodded. I wish to see you eat again, Henry. I have never seen you look so thin. Will you come with me on a progress to Scotland? Henry changed the subject. I should like to see my daughter now she is a queen in her own right. Margaret was crowned at Edinburgh in March 1504, and between 1507 and 1510 she had two sons and a daughter, but sadly they all died in infancy. It wasn't until 1512 when she gave birth to a surviving heir to the throne of Scotland, who succeeded his father at the age of two as James V in 1514. Margaret also had a posthumous son, Alexander, who died the following year. In my book, Mary Tudor Princess, which is about Margaret's younger sister, who did um, actually marry uh, the sickly King Louis of France, I have a scene where Mary attends her brother's banquet, this is Henry VIII, and they discuss a letter that he's received from Margaret. This is Ruth Redman narrating the audiobook of Mary Tudor Princess. Henry called out her name, summoning her to sit between himself and the Queen as a reward. The colour rose to her cheeks as she realised she'd become the centre of attention. You've helped retrieve this evening's entertainment from those accursed mummers, dear sister, Henry smiled, and ensured the ambassadors report the night as a success. At least one of my sisters knows how to please me. Thank you, dearest brother. Mary studied his face, trying to judge his mood. Is there news of Margaret? Henry nodded. We've had letters from our sister Margaret. Henry shared a look with Catherine, then drained his goblet of wine and gestured to his server for another. The news was a surprise to Mary, who'd almost forgotten she had a sister. She'd only been seven years old when Margaret was sent to Scotland and could hardly imagine how she might look. Mary did a quick calculation. Her sister would be 23 now. She received a short letter from Margaret long ago and agonised over her reply, yet never received an answer. Is our sister well? Her son lives. Henry scowled as if the thought reminded him of his own situation. She named him James, and she's pregnant again. Does this mean we are at peace with the Scots? 
Mary found it hard to understand how their sister could be an enemy. Far from it! Heads turned as Henry raised his voice. Her husband appointed himself as a peacemaker but will support the French, given the chance. Are we sure of this? Henry glowered at her question. Our sources are reliable. He seemed to realise he'd spoken a little harshly. We offered to send Margaret the jewels our father bequeathed her if she would only confirm the Scots would not attack England. Yet she refused. Mary hesitated to ask more. She'd learned better than to press her brother on affairs of state and fought back the frustration building inside her. Matters such as these affected them all, yet secrets were kept from her. Queen Catherine filled the silence. The child she carries is too soon after the birth of her son. I've ordered the abbot of Westminster to deliver the sacred girdle of Our Lady to comfort your sister in her confinement. Other than that, there is little we can do. She put her hand on Mary's arm and lowered her voice to a whisper. Our agents in the Scottish court tell us she is not as well as her letters would have us believe. Mary wasn't surprised to learn her brother had spies in the Scottish court. Her father once bitterly complained that every foreign visitor was a spy at heart, looking for signs of weakness to turn to their own advantage. The ambassadors, drinking his wine, would report all they heard back to King Ferdinand. Even the visiting cardinals were no doubt spying for the Pope in Rome. What troubled her was this unexpected glimpse of her sister Margaret's life. Henry said King James wished for peace, so that could only mean one thing. He was prepared to risk all their father worked so hard to achieve to win personal glory. I think it's fair to say that the marriage didn't go terribly well. And it all ended, of course, at the Battle of Flodden, where King James IV was killed on the 9th of September 1513. Um, you do get the impression sometimes that he was a bit reckless and an interesting insight into his character comes from the report of the Spanish ambassador of the time who wrote about James. He is courageous, even more so than a king should be. I'm a good witness of it. I've seen him often undertake the most dangerous things in the last wars. On such occasions, he does not take the least care of himself. He's not a good captain, because he begins to fight before he's given his orders. He said to me that his subjects serve him with their persons and goods in just and unjust quarrels, exactly as he likes, and therefore he does not think it right to begin any warlike undertaking without himself being the first in danger. His deeds are as good as his words. Scotland was now a divided country because Margaret's faction were in favour of an alliance with England. This is the alliance of perpetual peace, of course. But the rest sided with John Stuart, Duke of Albany, who was next in line to the throne after Margaret's sons. And of course, he wanted an alliance with France, mostly to annoy Henry Tudor. But also, uh, it would be quite a powerful thing for Scotland. Henry was busy looking for a new husband for his daughter and he was actually in negotiations with Emperor Maximilian who was old enough to be her father but of course that wouldn't trouble 
either of them. And then Margaret secretly married her lover, Archibald Douglas, who was the Earl of Angus, on the 6th of August, 1514. And this enabled the Duke of Albany to claim the throne of Scotland in July 1515. He kept poor Margaret uh, under sort of house arrest in Stirling Castle before she surrendered her sons to him. And she fled back to England in September, heavily pregnant with a daughter, Margaret, who of course was to become Countess of Lennox and grandmother of James I of England. In my book about Margaret's sister Mary Tudor, I describe how Margaret returned to her brother's court. And once again, this is narrated by Ruth Redman from the audiobook of Mary Tudor Princess. The years had not been kind to Mary's sister Margaret. Her waist had suffered the consequences of seven children and her teeth were discoloured and uneven, reminding Mary of her father. Her defiant eyes stared out from a pockmarked face and her fine new gown was a gift from her brother Henry. Although they'd exchanged letters, Mary last saw Margaret 13 years ago. She'd been seven at the time, but remembered the look of anguish on her 14-year-old sister's face as she left to marry the rakish King James IV of Scotland. Now Margaret had returned and was lodged at Baynard's Castle, once their grandmother's London home. Like Mary, she was running out of money and caused a scandal by marrying for love. Her new husband, the Earl of Angus, was the same age as her and on the wrong side of the civil war in Scotland. She'd also given him a daughter named Margaret the previous autumn. Henry invited them both to a state dinner at Lambeth Palace, the first time the three of them had been together since they were children. An awkward silence descended as Mary stood staring at her sister. She'd somehow imagined that their age difference would appear less now, but the contrast between them was stark. Margaret stepped forward and embraced her with unexpected warmth. Dearest Mary, her voice had the soft accent of the Scots, I've prayed for this day so long. As have I. It was true. Mary always remembered her sister in her prayers, although she'd not expected they would meet again. Margaret still held her by both arms, as if reluctant to let her go. I must congratulate you on the birth of little Henry. There was an odd note to her voice, and Mary saw her sister's sly glance at Queen Catherine, who watched their reunion, surrounded by the ladies of the court. The two of them had been on opposing sides while she'd been in France. Catherine had celebrated the slaughter of King James after his disastrous border raid. Reconciliation would take time, and Mary realised it would fall to her to become the peacemaker. She forced a smile. You must see him, and I can't wait to see your little daughter, Margaret. Margaret returned Mary's smile, forgetting to conceal her bad teeth. We have so much catching up to do. Henry joked he had three queens to contend with, each with a baby. The novelty drew every noble in the land and crowds of the curious to the tournament at Greenwich, as he knew it would. Queen Catherine sat in the centre of the royal grandstand, with Mary to her left and Margaret to her right, as Henry led the competitors in a colourful procession. Sadly, um, things didn't go terribly well with Margaret's second marriage, and she began to try and arrange a divorce from Angus but uh, ironically given his own later actions Henry VIII was against it. 
Um, Margaret fell in love with Henry Stuart, the second son of Lord Avondale, and uh, she finally managed to obtain a divorce from Angus in 1527 and married Henry Stuart. She had no children by him, and um, I'd just like to round off by reading a final excerpt from Sarah Beth Watkins' book about Margaret Tudor. Margaret was content to live out her older years with her family. She became a grandmother with the birth of James, Duke of Rothsey, born in May 1540, and Robert, Duke of Albany, who followed in April 1541. Tragically, both boys died within days of each other in the same month, although they were living in separate households. Their passing caused their parents great sorrow, and Margaret was there as a comfort and support. Her correspondence with her brother Henry was less these days, and she wrote, Pleaseth you, dearest brother, here hath been great displeasure for the death of the prince and his brother, both with the king, my dearest son, and the queen his wife. Wherefore I have done great diligence to put them in comfort, and never from them, but ever in their company, whereof they are very glad. Herefore I pray your grace to hold me excused, that I write not at length of my matters at this time, because I can get no leisure. By September, it seemed Margaret would get her long-forward wish uh, that James and Henry would finally meet at York. Both set out for the meeting, with Henry arriving ahead of James and ordering a magnificent reception. James got as far as the border and changed his mind, leaving Henry to impatiently wait for his nephew. When the English king realised the Scottish king wasn't going to show up, he was furious and ordered the Duke of Norfolk to ravage the border lands. Margaret was never going to see peace between her son and her brother. Margaret's troubles had made her ill, and she took to her bed in October at Mathven Castle. It appears she suffered a stroke, but did not consider she was dying. She made no will, and at first refused the insistence of her priests to prepare for her death. But as the hours passed, she realised she would not recover. James, who was at Falkland, was sent for, and as he rode to his mother's deathbed, she surprisingly told priests to beseech the king to be gracious to the Earl of Angus, and to tell James to look out for his half-sister, Margaret Douglas, and to pass on her jewels. Slipping into a coma, she died on the 18th of October at the age of 52. James had not made it in time to say his goodbyes. I'd like to recommend to anybody that would like to find out more about Margaret Tudor, uh, the book by Sarah Beth Watkins that I've briefly been quoting from, Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots, The Life of King Henry VIII's Sister, and it's published by Cronus uh, Books. Links to all of my books can be found on my website, tonyriches.com, and I'd like to thank you for listening.